Well, great to be with everybody again on this very exciting Sunday afternoon as we wrap up our Easter series talking about Jesus, the center of history. Now, just before I dive into this last summary uh, session together, I wanted to give some uh, just updates on where we're headed in terms of teaching for the next number of weeks as we are wrapping up a series. Next week, we'll be back into the Gospel of Mark, which we've been in for the last two, year, two years uh, on and off. And I'd be excited to know that for this next stretch, we will be finishing the Gospel of Mark. So really excited about that. On the webcast uh, this coming Thursday for the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to be taking some time to hear from some of our Simple Church regional directors and uh, hearing some of their thoughts in disciple making and leadership. And then we're working on a really exciting teaching series to help strengthen the theological and doctrinal vitality of our church in the weeks after that. So just a quick update on where we're going. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Robin, and I serve along with my wife as the lead pastors here at Lift Church. We just heard the words from Isaiah 53, and they are remarkable, not least for their beauty and power in the words themselves, but because those words were written hundreds of years before Jesus' life so accurately is described by those words. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. Up to this point in our teaching together, we've made this bold assertion that Jesus is the center of all history. Now, for this to be true, we've developed a four-pronged approach to explaining why. Firstly, we examined why we could be confident in Jesus' life and crucifixion under the Romans. Secondly, we established that the history historicity of the resurrection is the essential foundation of the Christian faith, and it is an event that we can be confident happened. Thirdly, on Thursday, this few days ago, we examined the story of the early church, the first followers of Jesus, to see how a band of misfits were transformed into a global force that has reached every tribe, tongue, language, and ethnicity over millennia. No person in history can even fulfill the claims that we've made so far. But today we want to look back. If Jesus is the center of history, then it is not just the events during and after Jesus' life that are relevant, but also those that come before his life on earth. And for this, to examine this, we need to turn to the story of the Israelites and the Old Testament. And what we're going to discover is that in the story of the Old Testament, we find that Jesus was three things. He was expected, he was predicted, and he was needed. You see, Jesus' life did not arrive out of a vacuum or into thin air. Rather, Jesus' life was the fulfillment of a long line of promises. Jesus did not so much create a new way of thinking out of nothing, but he took a very long story that God had been telling in humanity through to its consummation. You see, Jesus was located within a broader story of God's redemptive purposes within creation. Now, this is not just a theological point, though it is a theological point, but it is also a essentially practical one, and that's what I want to try to focus on. Jesus' life and death are not particularly meaningful if they are not connected to a broader story. If Jesus' life is going to have any substantial meaning for us today, his work must clearly be a part of a broader story that involves all people. In short, Jesus by himself is not that significant. It is the fact that we can locate his specific actions on earth in his life, death, and resurrection inside a larger story of God's work in humanity spanning many thousands of years. And it's that, that fact that Jesus is a part of a larger story that makes him so significant. You see, if Jesus is to be significant, he cannot be confined or only have his story be a part of a singular ethnic, religious, or people group. However, on the other hand, 
Jesus' life can only be powerful if it is truly human and located within a specific group and story. Otherwise, Jesus' life would have no relevance or relatability to ordinary humans. And so it's vital that Jesus both applies to all human beings in all history, but that he is also contextualized in real people with real customs, beliefs, traditions, and laws in order to speak. Towards this end, Jesus' life for all time and all people was accomplished at a time in a people. And the Old Testament is the story of those people. The Old Testament tells the story of the brokenness of humanity, a theme that we'll come back to in a minute, and God's promises of redemption within that brokenness. The opening chapters of the Old Testament describe the rebellion of humanity and God's promise to bring about redemption, not just for a specific people, but for all people. And this promise is reiterated over and over again through the opening scenes of the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis, a story of God promising to redeem all nations. The New Testament writers make the connection between Jesus' work and the beginning of creation explicit, for example, in John chapter 1 where it is written, John 1 is written as a parallel of the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. The writers of the New Testament, in fact, suggest that in Jesus there is a telling of a new story or a new creation coming into being to contrast with the story of creation in Genesis. In short, the writers of the New Testament saw Jesus not as just the answer to their people, but the answer to all people going back to the very beginning of the human story. Why is this relevant? And how does it increase our confidence in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? In short, the first part of this is that it's because Jesus was expected. Jesus was expected. One of the driving forces behind the explosive growth in the immediate years following Jesus' resurrection was the fact that the early Christians believed, argued, and were able to demonstrate that Jesus was the long-promised and awaited Jewish Messiah, and that His work was God's answer or the means by which God would bring about redemption for all humanity. In fact, this line of reasoning was so crucial to the early Christians that every single New Testament book, except for one, the book of James, talks about how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. The early disciples responded to Jesus as they did because they believed that he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. As John, uh, one of Jesus' close friends, wrote in his biography of Jesus, describing how people, uh, his first friends, responded to Jesus, he wrote this. He said, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. In other words, the disciples saw that Jesus was the long-expected Messiah. When the Apostle Peter, uh, emboldened by the resurrection, he was transformed from a timid, afraid uh, follower, follower that betrayed Jesus to an emboldened preacher. He stands up in front of his uh, fellow Jews and proclaims the gospel for the first time in Acts chapter 2. And the entire crux of his argument is that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And he quotes... Uh, from the book of Joel, as well as uh, the book of Psalms and some of David's Psalms in order to build that case. You see that this idea that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures wasn't an idea that the early Christians cooked up in order to explain Jesus. Rather, it was an idea that originated with Jesus himself. Jesus taught in John 5, for example, he said, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. 
Jesus believed that he was fulfilling the scriptures. Now this is important because it means that Jesus was holding himself to an external standard. The scriptures were the heart of Jewish life. And for Jesus to suggest that he was at the center of scriptures didn't just border on blasphemy. It was an invitation to an extremely high level of scrutiny. And what Jesus would do is regularly quote the scriptures to demonstrate that he was fulfilling them. In other words, Jesus held himself to the external standard of fulfilling the Old Testament. The early Christians relied heavily on this external validation of Jesus because it located Jesus within the broader story of God's movement in history. Jesus was the promised Messiah, Redeemer, and Reconciler of all humanity. Last week we talked about why the early Christians, who were all Jews, immediately and spontaneously started evangelizing their enemies, the Gentiles. Why did they do that? It's because Jesus, in their minds, was the long-promised Redeemer of all humanity. And that was good news to be shared. The behavior of the first Christians validates this idea that Jesus was expected. They expected Jesus to come, and not just come, but redeem all people because of the story of the Old Testament. However, more than merely fulfilling the scriptures in a generic sense, as I have been uh, speaking about thus far, Jesus specifically fulfilled specific aspects and the predictions of the Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Eusebius, one of the uh, early church fathers who was uh, writing in the fourth century, he said this about the implication of the specific prophecies about Jesus. He said, our conversion was not due to the emotional and unexamined impulse, but to judgment and sober reasoning, and that our devotion to the oracles or the prophets of the Hebrews thus had the support of judgment and sound reason. In other words, it was the prophecies examined in the cold light of day that led Eusebius to be confident in who Jesus was. About a millennia later, a little over a millennia later, the famous scientist and mathematician Blaise Pascal wrote this. He said, the prophecies are the strongest proofs of Jesus Christ. By one count, there are more than 300 specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And there's many instances in the Old Testament where specific aspects of the Messiah are, are anticipated. And the writers of the New Testament relied heavily on these particulars in order to build their argument, and they quote from them regularly. Why is that important? It's important because it means that the prophecies of the Old Testament, which were written by very uh, different people in different scenarios spanning more than a thousand years of history, were all anticipating the same event. The prophetic details of Jesus' life were not simply one person's predictions. They were many people, Isaiah, David, Moses, and so forth. And I want to examine a few of them to demonstrate this. Perhaps the most important of these is the prophet Isaiah. And he prophesied or predicted fairly specific details about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it would take actually all of our time together today to examine everything that Isaiah had to say about Jesus. But to highlight just a few, in Isaiah 7, Isaiah anticipates that there's one who would come from a virgin and would give birth to a son named Emmanuel. Later on, particularly in the, the closing sections of the book of Isaiah, Jesus anticipates one who would come as the suffering servant. I'd encourage you to read them starting in Isaiah 52. It's a really fascinating and beautiful section of scripture. But in, interestingly, he specifically anticipates some of the details around the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Messiah. In Isaiah 52, Isaiah wrote, My servant will be successful. He will be raised 
and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. This is speaking of the crucifixion. And his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they see what they had been told them, and they will understand what they have not heard. And speaking of the resurrection, Isaiah wrote this. Listen to this. This is remarkably lucid. He said in Isaiah 53, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him, the suffering servant, severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed and he will prolong his days by his hand. And the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Listen to this, verse 11. After his anguish, he will see his light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him... the many is a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death. Do you see that? That Isaiah anticipated the death of the suffering servant and his resurrection in Isaiah 53, because he was counted among rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for them. Moses, one of the most influential figures described the Passover lamb, which many Christians understood Jesus to be fulfilling. Specifically, Moses detailed that the Passover lamb should not have its bones broken. And in the same fashion, Jesus, as the ultimate Passover lamb, did not have any of his bones broken. A theme that was really intentionally drawn out by the New Testament authors. David, the psalmist and one of the most influential figures as well in the New Testament, describes the resurrection In Psalm 16, and Peter quotes in this in Acts chapter 2. In Psalm 22, uh, I'd encourage you to go do a parallel of Psalm 22 with the resurrection accounts. It's mind-boggling how closely Psalm 22 maps on to the crucifixion. Psalm 22 describes the piercing of hands and feet as with crucifixion. It describes the casting of lots for Jesus' clothes, an event Jesus couldn't control. It describes the specific mocking that Jesus would receive and that specifically around the fact that he would not receive help. It describes the dislocation of Jesus' bones. It's remarkable how accurately the two accounts, Psalm 22 and the crucifixion, are to each other. The many other prophets, for example, had details about Jesus' rights. Samuel prophesied explicitly that the Messiah would come from Jesus, or sorry, from David's genealogy. Something that uh, the biographer of Jesus, Matthew, set out to demonstrate. Matthew, again, highlights that the religious leaders of Jesus' day believed that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This was based off a prophecy hundreds of years earlier from Micah chapter 5. Hosea described Jesus coming out of Egypt, again, hundreds of years before Jesus, something Jesus did. Zechariah, in describing God's salvation, anticipated that God himself would be pierced as the firstborn son. Further, Zechariah prophesied that the king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, something Jesus fulfilled. And in Zechariah 11, Zechariah anticipated one who would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver something that also happened to Jesus. Malachi chapter 3 prophesies of the precursor, one who would come to announce Jesus, something that John the Baptist fulfilled. This is just a brief list of a few that I have selected. There's many, many more. We could spend all day drawing the parallels between the descriptions of Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. There's two objections that people could make at this point. The first is that, well, maybe the prophecies were written before, or sorry, the prophecies were written after Jesus. Well, this objection is pretty straightforward to deal with because there is ample evidence to demonstrate that the Old Testament texts were written far before Jesus. In particular, one important discovery in 1946 and 1947, there was the discovery of what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And these have been accurately dated to around 125 BC. Within them, almost an entire copy of the book of Isaiah was found, including the sections that are referenced today, demonstrating conclusively that it was written before. But even more importantly than the fact that we were able to discover some very, very ancient versions of the Hebrew Bible, what was found was that at that point in time, the oldest Hebrew Bible was from about 1008 AD, so about a thousand years ago. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls were found a thousand years before that. And yet these two documents, despite a thousand years separating them, are virtually identical. Meaning that we can be highly confident in the transmission of the Old Testament and that it wasn't manipulated by Christians to say something it didn't say. The second critique you could make is, well, the prophetic passages that I've referenced are not that specific or they're all taken out of context. And it's true that most of the prophecies that are used to demonstrate Jesus do not refer to Jesus explicitly or a part of a broader context. That's true. And to deny that would not be doing the text justice. But we have to look at the big picture here. The Old Testament reads a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. It's not clear how all the pieces of the Old Testament fit together, especially these messianic passages that I've referred to. They don't really make very much sense on their own. In fact, they're almost bizarre on their own. The Old Testament without Jesus is sort of dissonant, meaning it doesn't have a very coherent or consistent way of communicating its message. But the Messianic prophecies, when we view Jesus as the center of the story, they start to make a whole lot more sense. Quoting Blaise Pascal here, he said this, but in Jesus Christ, all dissonances are brought into harmony. Jesus is like the picture on the box of the puzzle to assemble the Old Testament. Any individual messianic passage in the Old Testament doesn't carry that much weight on their own, but the sum total is significant. We've looked so far at the fact that Jesus was expected, that Jesus was predicted, but I wanna turn our attention to this last point, that Jesus was needed. The Old Testament makes the emphatic case for the existential need of Jesus. The primary message of the Old Testament is not just that the details of the Messiah were predicted, though that is quite compelling. Rather, the primary message of the Old Testament is that we, humanity, need a Messiah. If Jesus is the center of all human history, he needed to solve some kind of problem. The Old Testament tells the story of how humans have a very serious and very deep problem. If Jesus is going to be the center of history, he needs to be speaking or solving the central problem of the human experience. Uh, we could phrase this different ways. We could say the problem is what is the meaning of life or is God good or why is there evil? And all of these large existential questions are all problems in need of a solution. But core to all questions of human experience fundamentally is the understanding that there is something that is horribly wrong. Life for all of its pain, or sorry, life for all of its joy and beauty is broken. The human story is not just one of love and kindness, but it is marred with brokenness pain, and blood. The Old Testament is, generally speaking, a story of what happens when people act on their own impulses and selfishness. It demonstrates with absolute clarity that the human condition is in need of salvation. When we read the story of the Old Testament, we do not read a story of how great humanity is at solving its problems we read a story of how desperate humanity is in need of a solution. This is vitally important because again, if Jesus is going to be the center of history, he needs to seriously confront the condition of hum humanity, our brokenness. 
Any proposed worldview or religion or solution to the human condition first needs to demonstrate that it is taken into account the seriousness of the human condition. The majority of worldviews do not take the human condition nearly seriously enough. In fact, most worldviews outside of Jesus are some form of human betterment. If we try hard enough to follow the right rules or system, we will find the solution. And worldviews arise over and over again to propose these solutions. This is the story of the Old Testament, and it's the story of our lives. Even atheistic worldviews make proposed solutions. Communism proposes that the problem is classism. Modern-day critical theory teaches that eliminating systemic oppression is the solution. Capitalism teaches that the individual pursuit of success is the solution. Feminism teaches that overthrowing the patriarchy is the solution. Rationalism teaches that human reason is the solution. The problem is that all of these worldviews and all of the worldviews we read about in the Old Testament are self-evidently flawed. If humans were capable of fixing ourselves, why are we still broken? The Old Testament answers this question emphatically by demonstrating over and over again that we cannot fix ourselves. The Old Testament teaches that the human heart is the problem. And it's only in the New Testament that we see that Jesus is willing to confront the ugliness inside every one of us. And that's why the Old Testament looks ahead to a Messiah who will heal the human condition. The Old Testament looks at the human story and says we need a real solution. Jesus comes as that solution. In order to examine more about what this looks like, I'm going to pass you over to Alex in just a minute. After you examine, what does this tell you about the purposefulness of God's action for us today? My name is Alex, and I'm going to pick up where he left off and, and really help us finish this Easter series. Awesome. Well, welcome back again, back. My name is Alex. As Robin said, I'm going to pick up where he left off and continue this idea of, of the story of the Bible, this, the big narrative of the Bible. You know, in part, it rings true because, as he just talked about, it speaks to the broken, painful reality of our human condition. 
In other words, we, we know it's true because we look around and we look within and we say, yes, we, we are deeply flawed. We need a savior. We need something outside of ourselves to make this right. And so in that way, the, the story of the Bible beautifully helps us understand ourselves and who we are. But it's also the story through which we see the incredible sacrificial and faithful presence of God in the midst of our brokenness. What could have been a narrative of rejection is a profoundly beautiful narrative of redemption. You know, God did not abandon our deeply flawed humanity. No, the story of the Bible is that he actually entered it in order to heal it and make it right. The story of the Bible is the story of Jesus. As Robin said, far from being randomly dropped into the plot out of nowhere, no, Jesus is the story. It all points to him from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, into the last book, Revelation. It's all leading to him. It's all pointing to him. He is the beginning and the end. And so with the time that we have left here today in this series, I'd like to tell you that story as best that I can. So here's where we begin in creation. The story began in a beautiful garden that God brought to life out of nothing. His creativity, his power, his intimacy were all on display at creation. When God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, he met with them. He met with man in that garden. In fact, he created in order to enjoy his creation with us. He's always been an intimately relational God. And we... Humanity have always longed for his presence. In fact, it, it's what changes us and it's, it's the thing that we fear most being absent from us. At creation, we were given a reason for being, a meaning to this life. We were given a purpose that is to rule and to care for God's creation. A purpose to worship him and reflect glory back to him. So there we were, we were with God, it was beautiful, we were in the midst of his, the, his very glory, we had purpose, and the Bible says that it was good. It was very good. So what happened? Because that's not exactly what we know today, right? Peace, presence with God, purpose, so what went wrong? Well, what happened, Robin alluded to, is that rather than trust God to define what is good and what is true, Adam and Eve, the first humans, took that power upon themselves. They rejected God and his authority. And that sin is now still part of our human condition and experience. You see, what happened with that rejection is the, the purpose that God gave us and the intimacy that we had with him was broken. It was fractured and it needed to be forgiven. There was gonna be a penalty for that. What happened with that fracturing of that relationship then is that the, Im the image of God that he created us to, to bear was marred. And so rather than being truly, fully alive, sin turned the story. Sin turned the story of creation and humanity away from life and towards death. That is what went wrong. Now, we're going to see that pattern repeated as we go through the story today. But I also want you to see God's faithful and purposeful love at each and every turn. In fact, it started right here, right in this first sin, this fall in Genesis chapter 3. Right on the heels of Adam and Eve's rejection of his authority, God's faithful love shows up in a promise. In speaking to Satan, God's enemy who led Adam and Eve astray, listen to what God said to him, Genesis 3:15. He said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. He, this one to come, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What was God saying there? He was promising a son. A, a son of Eve, a seed of the woman, who would one day come and defeat this evil enemy, make right 
all that sin had made wrong. Forgive and bring us back away from death, back towards life. Can you see it right in the beginning? Right after this first fall, this first turn, God promises a savior. Genesis chapter 3. And so as you can expect then, a question began to ring out down through the generations of these first humans. Okay, who will this son be? Who will be the seed of the woman? Who, who is it? Who will save us? Became the, became the dominant question. In fact, in Genesis chapter 5, don't worry, I'm not going to go chapter by chapter. But in Genesis chapter 5, there is this genealogy of Adam and Eve's family. And it's written in a way that we cannot skip over. I know we normally skip over genealogies, but we can't skip this one over. Listen to the first few lines of this genealogy. It says, Adam had a son named Seth, and then he died. Seth had a son named Enosh, and then he died. Enosh had a son named Canaan, and then he died. And this refrain starts to linger like a drumbeat down through history, and then he died. As, as Adam and Eve's family is asking, who will this savior be? Who will this son be? All that they have to show for it is, and then he died, and then he died. Who will save us? How will God's faithful love come into our broken world, into our hurt, and turn the story back towards life? Well, from there, the story then focused in on one man, Abraham, and the family that came from him, people called Israel. Listen to this incredible moment between God and this one man, Abraham, from Genesis chapter 12, a pivotal moment in the story. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram one day, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Can you see it? God chose one man, one family to do what? To bring blessing to all humanity. You see, even in our rebellion, God would not abandon broken, hurting creation. Instead, he brought a, a new plan, a journey towards blessing, a journey towards new creation, bringing life where sin had brought death. And so with this family, Robin talked a little bit about God made what were called covenants, promised relationships, where he would choose to use this family, work with them in order to try to bring blessing to the world. One day, though, that entire plan looked like it was about to stop dead in its tracks. You see, this one man, Abraham, had at the, at the time had only one son, Isaac. In fact, Isaac was a very special son. He was a miracle. God gave Abraham and his wife, Sarah, the son, Isaac, even though their age was well past childbearing years. God gave Abraham and Sarah the son Isaac that the family who was to bless the world would be able to continue. And yet one day, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now it was a test, but at the time, all that Abraham knew was that God had the right to ask him to do anything. And so as Abraham and Isaac made this trek up the mountainside to build an altar, Isaac asked his father, Dad, where's the lamb for our sacrifice? To which Abraham replied, God will provide. They built an altar for this sacrifice and Abraham painfully began to tie his own son Isaac to the altar and as he raised his knife over his head he was stopped by an angel of God who said Abraham don't harm the boy the Lord knows that you fear him since you have not withheld your only son from him 
Just then Abraham looked up and he saw a ram there and he and Isaac sacrificed that ram before God and they called the place the Lord will provide. And that he did. Through Isaac, Abraham's family continued to grow into a nation called Israel. Now the problem was in the story that despite God's continued faithfulness, there continued to be more turns toward death. One in particular is that these people that were meant to be blessing to the world, they actually found themselves in slavery and needing to be delivered. Slavery in Egypt. What would God do at this turn? He would rescue them. It was in this, or in this slavery in Egypt that God confronted the evil that was enslaving his people. And he did so by sending his power in a number of plagues. The final one, God told every Israelite family that they would need to trust him in order to be rescued. And he told them to sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle that blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes so that that night his spirit would see the blood of the lamb and would pass over that, that house and save them from this final plague. In that way, in this moment of need, God provided a substitute, a Passover lamb, whose, whose death would be in place of the Israelites and would give them new life. And so with this final force of power, the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh finally relented and he released God's people from their slavery. The journey towards new creation and blessing to humanity was able to continue. Now, some of you might be familiar with parts of this story. The story of the Exodus is, is a fairly well-known one because it is incredible. From there, God led Moses, the leader, and the Israelites through a parted Red Sea. It's an incredible, incredible moment. And while it's well-known for that, the climax of that story is actually just after the Red Sea at a place called Mount Sinai. You see, it was there that God restored purpose. He gave his people the purpose they had in the beginning. And he renewed his relationship with them. At Mount Sinai, God gave his people, his children, his law. And he, and he called them to be a people who would follow him. But he also gave them a special purpose. He called them to be a kingdom of priests. Now, a priest would be like a go-between, between humanity and God. We would need someone in the middle, a mediator, in order to know God. God's heart was that this family, this nation, would be a kingdom of those go-betweens for the whole world. But they couldn't. They couldn't do it. They couldn't be faithful to God's law in order to, to be the kind of priest that humanity would need to know God. And from there, the story continues to spiral. As Israel sets up a kingdom and, and elects kings, um, there, were, there were many kings. Some feared the Lord and did what they could to be faithful. Many were just wicked. And even the ones who came close to faithfulness, even no one was able to rule with true righteousness, true justice or mercy. In short, it was a mess. And perhaps you've heard or read some of the wicked stories of the Old Testament. It's almost unbelievable that God didn't give up on his people or on his plan. Like when we say that God's love for us is patient, it's an understatement, an overwhelming understatement. Now what's fascinating about this part of the story is even in this mess, God still desired to be with his people. In fact, they needed his presence. They, they have ever since the garden. They needed his presence in some form. And so in his mercy, God made a way. And one of those ways was in the temple. It became the meeting place of God and man. It was a symbol of his faithfulness, but also the very dwelling of his presence where he could be in their midst, even though they were unfaithful and rebellious. You see, he's always been, God has always desired to be God with us, even in our sin. Now, this merciful presence of God made Israel's continual rebellion 
that much more devastating. In fact, it got so bad that the low point of the story is they ended up in exile, taken into captivity by other nations. It was absolute low point. Once again, God's people, those that were supposed to be his, a kingdom of priests, bringing blessing to the world, they were not home where they should be. They were far from his presence in the temple. They weren't able to, to, to take up their purpose of worship and reflecting his glory. Exile is a theme in the Old Testament, the result of rejecting God. When we reject God, there's going to be distance from him. We need that that guilt to be forgiven. And we need him to restore us back home. Can you see how this was another turn in the story? Another turn away from God, away from life towards death. And yet, once again, at this turn, it was another moment of God's purposeful presence. We see it in part through the prophets, which Robin talked about. Consider the faithfulness of God here. Even, it was all throughout history, but even in exile, God sent messages to his people through these prophets. The messages often shared common themes. One, talking about exile would be the result of the rebellion. And also, common promise after promise that one day, their God would send a good king called the Messiah. And so even at this low point in the story, for God's people, hope flickered. There was hope. God had not given up on them. He would send this Messiah. Hope flickered because that promise to Adam and Eve of a son was still there. The son would, would come and he would suffer and he would provide forgiveness. God even said that this Messiah would in somehow, some form be God himself being the king that we needed. And so prophet after prophet spoke of this Messiah. But what's interesting is that the Old Testament story ended and this promised king never came. And for, in, in fact, there's about 400 years between the last prophet in the Old Testament and the beginning of the Gospels, the New Testament. 400 years of silence. Until one night... An ordinary group of shepherds saw the sky light up. And Luke 2 says, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a savior has been born to you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus had come, the one that they said would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, church, when we couldn't get back to God, he came, took on flesh and blood, and came into our brokenness, into our hurting world in a person, his son. Jesus came into our world and, and he called all people to repent and believe this good news that the kingdom of God was here, that it had come. And he proved it. He, he healed. He restored lives. He taught and changed lives. He, he started to bring heaven to earth. His arrival into our existence was the fullest expression of the love of God. He was giving us his son, us, the ones who had constantly rejected his authority and his love. And even in the story of Jesus' time on earth, that pattern again repeated because Jesus too was rejected. We talked about it on Good Friday. Rejected even by Israel's leaders to the point of his death. And so in that moment, as Jesus hung on the cross on Good Friday, it would have appeared that the Adam and Eve genealogy seemed to repeat itself. Joseph had a son, Jesus, and then he died. Jesus was buried, and again, there was silence. This time it was much shorter. It was only three days. And this silence, too, was broken by more shouts of good news. That good news said that Jesus was dead, 
but he is alive again. You see, all human history had been hinging on that moment. All of God's faithfulness had been leading up to this moment, this person, his son, Jesus. Do you see it? Every page of the story, every page of the Bible from Genesis on has been pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world that brought life out of darkness. Colossians 1 says that all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the seed of Eve, the son God promised in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the blessing to the nations that God promised through Abraham, who would reconcile all people, all nations, together in himself. Jesus is the son on the altar. God did what Abraham did not have to do. Watch his only son die on that altar. You see, Abraham didn't withhold his only son from God, but God didn't withhold his only son from us. Instead of Isaac, it was Jesus. Abraham was right. The Lord will provide. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Like the one in Egypt who was killed so that they could be rescued from slavery, we too have been rescued from slavery in sin and brought to freedom in grace. His death was victory and not defeat. Jesus is our great high priest. He's the only one who is actually faithful to God's law and therefore could be that go-between between us, imperfect sinners, and good, righteous God. Jesus is our good king, whom the prophets said would come from the family of King David, and yet who would surpass all of those kings in righteousness, justice, and mercy. Jesus is our temple. It's no longer a physical place, but it's a person. He is God with us, the meeting place of God and man. John chapter 1, it says that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus is the word of God. Hebrews says that in the past, God spoke through his prophets, but now he's spoken by the very sending of his son. And church, he has spoken fully and finally. God is faithful. This should be a narrative of rejection, but God has made it one of redemption. If we, if we ever wonder and question, you know, how can there be a God with, with this suffering in this world? Look at what he did. Look at what he did. He entered it. God is purposeful. He didn't abandon it. He didn't abandon our deeply flawed humanity. Jesus became like it, was crushed by it. You see, he became like us so that we could become like him now, fully alive, fully human, back home with God, like the garden. The story of Jesus is the story of humanity. It's our story. Every turn we made towards death, God turned us back to life. And that turn is, was, and will always be Jesus. Let me finish with this. Listen to how John describes our hope of this new creation that God will fully bring one day. Revelation 21. John says, I, I did not see a temple in it, the new city. Why? Because the Lord... God, the Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations, all people, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Revelation 22, John says, Then he, God, showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any more curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. Creation to new creation, all in Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Rob and I will be back in just a moment to wrap this all up.
All right, well, welcome back, guys. We want to, as we've been doing uh, in all parts of this series, kind of just come together with a few concluding thoughts and say, so what? Now what? <laughs> what does this mean? What do we do? So, Robin, we'll start with you, as usual. So what? What now? Uh, I'll be honest with you, Alex. Like I, was, I started to cry <laughs> while you were teaching there. Just... Um, I think the so what for me at the end of the day is there's no one as beautiful as Jesus. And, you know, um, we've worked hard to present, I think, the most cogent explanation and arguments and evidence and so forth for who Jesus is. But at the end of the day, it's because Jesus really is beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Um, how, I, I don't know how you could hear the story of what God has been doing in humanity since the dawn of time a story that like so consistently and faithfully points to Jesus and not respond um, he, he, he's just amazing mm. and so I'm a little bit at a loss for words just struck by like almost in a fresh and a new way like we so desperately need Jesus and yet he's so compassionately came to us yeah yeah that's just that just blows my mind it's overwhelming i like i think for me, for me it all comes down to um like the the person of Jesus wants wants us to know him and to yeah. and to give our lives to him uh, you know, there's this really cool story in the Gospels after the resurrection where uh, some, of, some of his disciples, like some, not the 12, but like others, um, didn't recognize him at first. And he walks along this road and they have no idea that it's resurrected Jesus. And so they're kind of like, oh, it's over. You know, and he, and, and Luke says that in that journey that they were taking, Jesus did that, but like a, a million times better. And he opened the scriptures and he told them how it all pointed to himself. And they didn't quite get it at first. And then at the end of that journey, they had what we're going to have tonight, which is the Lord's Supper communion. And they had this intimate, like, across the supper table moment. Yeah. And they were like, oh, it's Jesus. Yeah. And that was the, and, you know, I've often wondered why, like, why didn't anyone write down what he said in that, in that row? Because that would have made that a lot easier. Um, I think the point was that it was pointing to him and he said, I want, I want to know, like, I want to know you so desperately that I'll enter your pain. I'll allow it to overtake me. Yeah. I'll conquer it. So like at the end of the day, the only real thing that matters now is like, just come and know me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's beautiful. He's incredible. And I just, I want everyone to know who's watching that that invitation is for you. Like that purposefulness, that faithfulness of God through all, these events in history is for you, yes. for you personally. And so maybe that ties us into communion. I don't yeah, well, actually, the, the thought I was going to sort of segue off of into communion brilliantly connects to that is the final words from Jesus that he says to his disciples is go and make disciples mm -hmm. of all nations, baptize them. And he says, I am with you. Yeah. He's with you, he's with us. God is with us because he's for us, because he loves us, because mm -hmm. he's kind and gracious. And every, every time we come to the communion table, which is really just a time of remembering what Jesus has done, it's also this statement, a reminder to our souls that God is with us. Yeah. Like we, we are not alone. Mm -hmm. We are not abandoned. We are not rejected. That despite the fact that, yes, we are we have ugliness in us that Christ has looked at us and said, I love you. Mm. And so in a moment, we're going to share the, the, the bread and the juice of communion, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and the, the, the juice or the wine representing his shed blood for us. But it's a statement about God's profound and unending love for us. At the heart that I have, that I know you have as well, Alex, is that the world would know that. Absolutely. 
our world desperately needs to know that they're loved. And so we're going to share communion together. Um, and so Alex, why don't you Yeah. This? Communion is, this, as Robin said, this beautiful symbol that, that Jesus, he, he took another, a, a Passover meal that the disciples were having. And it was right before his death and the night before, in fact, and, and, and he, he made this, this meal fulfilled in himself. They would have had it many, many times, but they would have been talking about the past. And so Jesus stood up and he, he took the bread that they were eating and he gave thanks for it. He gave it to them. And he said, this, this bread is my body that is broken for you. I, I'm going to suffer for you in your place. And this, and this bread represents that. So he said, when, when you eat this meal together, do it in remembrance of, of my faithfulness and my work on your behalf. And then he took the cup of wine that they were drinking and he said, this, this cup this represents my blood that is going to be shed. It's the blood of a new covenant, a new relationship. I will make your heart new so that you can know me. When he said, when you drink this cup, when you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. And so we continue as believers, as the church, to do that. And, and one of the things I love about it, there's so much meaning to it. We proclaim his death. As Robin said, we say, yes, Lord, we, we believe that your work is enough. But I also love how, how intimate it is. Um, Jesus is saying, remind yourselves that you need me as desperately as you need even food and drink. Mm-hmm. And the thought that we can have this in a communal way where we are s- sitting across the table from, he's that present um, and we can commune with him. What an invitation. And so if you are uh, a follower of Jesus and you, and you have the elements, invite you to participate. And if you're not, I would invite you to participate too and make this a moment, if this is where you are at, to say, yes, Jesus, I believe that this is your body broken for me, your blood shed for me that I can be made new, restored to the Father, brought home, given a life of identity, belonging, and purpose. Make this moment a moment to confess that to Jesus and be welcomed into his family. So let me pray, and then we'll partake. Jesus, we come to your communion table today just so, um, so privileged, so humbled by the invitation to, to know you simply based on what you've done for us on the cross, what you've done for us in the beginning of history. Lord, I pray that as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup today, as we declare what we know to be true of you, that you would remind us of your incredible intimate presence, your desire, your intense desire to know us, to make us new. I pray that each and every one, wherever we are, participating in this together, Lord, remind us that we're doing it together as your body, as your family. Remind us that you are present right here in this moment. We thank you for this beautiful meal, this reminder. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Thank you so much, Alex, for leading us through that. Pray that this uh, time, these last four sessions together, have been helpful, encouraging. If you came into this time together and you didn't or don't know Jesus, our prayer is that you would be open to his goodness. Mm. That from what we've been able to share, that you would really truly see how much he loves you. And I would invite you to, regardless of how you came in, 
or what you think today to continue to process together. To continue to share your thoughts with those that invited you. Mm -hmm. If you're in a simple church, to dialogue in, in your simple church. If you're not in a simple church, to, to uh, ask the person that shared this with you to how you could get connected into a simple church. If you, as a result of this, you say, you know what, yes, I see how good Jesus is, and I want to confess him as my Lord. I believe that the Lord has raised him from the dead, and I want to confess him as my Lord. I would invite you to share that with the person that invited you. If somebody didn't invite, invite you and you, you don't know anyone, please contact us at info at liftchurch.ca, and we'll make sure to get you connected. Or you can head to engage.liftchurch.ca and click the Get Me Connected uh, link right there at the, the top of the page. In either case, we'd want you to continue to dialogue, to continue to follow Jesus, or ask questions about Jesus. Mm -hmm. and so we hope that this is just the beginning. Regardless how you came in, we pray that you would continue to take next steps. That's all for us. We'll be back on Thursday with the Discipleship Webcast and next Sunday to continue our series in Mark. Be blessed.